The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and a big welcome to anybody who is here for the first time. It's always uh, it's just interesting how we end up at a place like Common Ground and connect with these teachings, these ancient teachings, ancient and yet somehow still pretty straightforward and practical, useful, even though um, they come out of this ancient tradition way back 2,600 years ago from this person, Shakyamuni Buddha. Buddha is really a title, somebody who's awake. Buddha means being awake. And then... You know, it didn't just come from the Buddha because it was one generation of people after another. They had complicated lives, as I often say at the end, you know, busy lives, complicated relationships, duties and responsibilities, and yet they found some way to hear, to study, hear the teachings, study the teachings, reflect on them, practice, gain some value from them, right? Became wiser, kinder human beings. And one generation after another somehow modeled, lived out the teachings, shared the teachings for the next generation. So that's quite a few generations, these 2,600 years. And then some, you know, convoluted way, it ends up at this corner in Minneapolis at this time. And now we're hearing these teachings and it's our turn to see what, what we'll do with them. And one of the fundamental, um, I guess, principles in how the Buddha taught what he had to share, having reflected deeply on his own experience of being a human being, having a mind, bumping into the same kind of experiences, I'm guessing that we, human beings, bump into greed, anger, and delusion, as he talked about it. You know, the various ways that the mind experiences dissatisfaction, experiences a kind of psychic, psychological weight, constriction, right? He bumped into those experiences. Instead of just reacting or like the pattern of, oh, why, why me? Oh, poor me. You know, got interested, had enough curiosity, stabilized his awareness to really look at or open up to these different experiences and came to understand something about the nature of the mind. One of the things he regularly shared, one of the basic principles, is, you know, it's really the distillation of his years of study and years of teaching, what he had come to understand, was to suggest, to encourage a really deep suspicion around any fixed views that we might have. You know, to basically develop some radar around living our life through the experience of having attachment or holding tight to views, uh, any views. Now, the interesting thing is, We need views to live our life, and certainly we need views 
ideas to interact with other human beings. So not having fixed views does not, is not the same as not being able to make a choice or have a thought or have an opinion about something. It's really the emphasis is how the mind tends to want to fix on an opinion or a view, a way of being, and then become dependent. Right? Once we have a fixed idea of like who I am or who I think you are or who's right and who's wrong, once I have a fixed idea, I, in a sense, I build a sense of me around that being right, that idea, that view being right. And then tension comes in pretty quickly because now I have to defend that fixed view against any experience that might challenge, might have a different view or different information that doesn't somehow line up with that view. So now I'm in a contentious relationship with the world, with everything that's moving and everything that's different. And that is stressful. And then we start to, because of the contentious relationship, we pick up some strategies. Like one of the ways to deal with the fact that the world isn't lining up with my view of things, my fixed view of things, is to make the choice, well, I guess I just won't pay attention to the way the world is because it's not lining up with the way I think it is. So we start going down this road like it's not safe to be connected with the way it is because it doesn't line up with the way I think it is. And I've ended up becoming pretty dependent on my fixed view of things, more dependent on my view of things than I am on the world being the way that it is. So when when we're forced to make a choice, We choose to be in alignment with what we think is true rather than how it is, the direct experience. Now, it makes a lot of sense then that the basic strategy the Buddha taught was, you know, if the basic problem is that we've become attached to view and then to support our attached or our fixed views, we've chosen to be disconnected, let's just say disconnected from the way it is because it makes it harder to maintain our fixed views, right? Then the correction to that would be to develop a stability of awareness, continuity of awareness, present moment awareness, and practice aligning with the way it is instead of aligning with our fixed views about things. So that's basically our practice. We sit down, you know, in a formal way when we're formally meditating, and we're seeing this fork in the road. Every moment there's a fork in the road, I can act out my habit to be in alignment with my views about things, my ideas, like even the idea I'm a bad meditator, right? That's my fixed view. Or, I'm a good meditator. It doesn't matter what the view is. Or, I'm not even sure what meditation is. We can get fixed to that. And then, we basically become afraid of anything that challenges that view. Because that's what we believe. That's who I am. That's the way it is. And we prefer the certainty or the ground that that idea seems to provide the attachment to that idea seems to provide more than an authentic 
investigation or an authentic opening connection with the wildness of the way it is. Things coming and going, the sensitive heart being sensitive to what comes and goes. So the practice is to choose the other side, you know, not to go that way. So to protect yourself from going that way, we realize that's just a thought being known. That's just an opinion. It's just a view. It's just a view. We're not afraid of the opinions, the thoughts, the views, the ways of constructing meaning. We're not afraid of any of that mental activity because we know it's just what it is. It's just a thought, just a point of view, a perspective. Whether it's my point of view, my perspective, or somebody else's, and having sort of disconnected from the pull to be attached, because we realize it's just a thought, we have this other possibility now, which is like using the basic training ground of the body, breathing in, sensations are being known, body is like this, pleasantness, unpleasantness, whatever, the body feels like this, it's just this. That's not the idea, but the direct experiencing of sensation, or seeing, or hearing, or thinking as just thoughts. Mental activity is just that. So we're choosing this other route over and over again. And so it's not so much we're replacing wrong view with what we might call right view, as we are realizing the limitations of any fixed view, even a relatively skillful fixed view, like the idea that everything's changing. We can get fixed to that idea, right? It's a relatively wholesome idea, point of view, belief to believe in. But getting attached to that just sort of sets us up, you know, for problems, like something appears not to be changing. And then all of a sudden, it's an existential threat. I thought everything was changing, but this pain, you know, this person insulted me today, and it won't go away. You know, the pain, the obsessiveness of my mind around what that person did to me. I thought everything changes. Why isn't this changing? A lot of us, since the election, you know, have opinions about, you know, what's going on in Washington or opinions about what's going on in Minneapolis or opinions about all kinds of things. And sometimes those opinions, well, this isn't going to last. You know, this can't be. And then it sort of challenges. Well, sometimes the way things change is, you know, they keep getting renewed. Something keeps getting renewed. So, like, that's a change, too. Instead of it coming and going away, the change is it comes, and then it comes again and and again. I mean, that's part of, like, everything changes, meaning doesn't mean that we can expect whatever has arisen to not arise again in the next moment. It means that it's ungovernable, that anything can happen, that we can't determine how it's going to be because the interdependence, the complexity of causes and conditions are beyond our human capacity to read it all. We know it's lawful. We know it's conditional. 
but we don't know how it's going to play out within our own mind, let alone within our wider communities that we're part of. We just know it's all in motion and it's ungovernable. And we can either pretend otherwise or we can come into alignment with it. And it's a very humbling process. It actually can be quite unpleasant. But what really can help, and what I wanted to spend some time talking about tonight, is this quality of metta or loving kindness. So again, going back to the Buddha and this person who had some deep insight and, and realized some real freedom in, in his own experience, coming more and more into alignment, basically training the psychology of the mind, the meaning-making tendency of the mind to come into alignment with the way it is. And then in doing that, the Buddha came to a deeper understanding of the causes for stress and suffering in life which is basically the mind, the problem, the existential suffering only exists within the conditioned mind. It's not like the nature of things themselves that's off, but the conditioning of the mind, the way the mind makes meaning, there's some problem because it's not in alignment with the way it is. So then the correction isn't that we have to fix the world, we have to adjust what the conditioned mind is doing about the world. And it's basically rope burn, right? It's creating friction. That's what the conditioned mind is doing. It's creating friction. So to reduce that friction that the conditioned mind, the thinking mind, the meaning-making mind, to reduce the friction, right? Like something's happening but I don't want it to happen, or something's not happening in my life, but I want something to happen. That's the friction. right? So the meaning-making, thinking mind is not in alignment with the way it is. And we always think the way to adjust, or to deal rather with the pain of that, is to fix the world. And so the story you know, that you might, might have heard me say, but ancient story in the tradition, it's like, walking around barefoot on the world, on the earth rather, and constantly stubbing our toe and stepping on sharp objects and thinking, oh my God, we've got to cover this world in shag carpeting because it's, <laughs> it's a pain to be stepping on sharp, sharp objects all the time. Because right? that would seem to be a rational conclusion to the problem as opposed to making a pair of shoes. And what the Buddha realized, he saw in his, his own life and then observed in everybody else's life this attempt to cover the earth in shag carpeting, right? endlessly frustrating to get rid of all the sharp objects, to somehow have a human life with no sharp objects, no insults, nothing that rubs me the wrong way, nothing that is you know, problematic. Instead, we can make this other shift right? Basically having immunity with the world being the way that it is. There's a shift in view. And the the basic flavor is from fixed view to non-fixed view, from taking everything personally to realizing that that's a choice that doesn't need to be made. 
we can be just as engaged, just as intelligent in how we navigate our lives, figure out how we're going to feed ourselves, figure out how we can contribute and make the world a better place without this habit of attaching or taking things personally as we can when we take things personally. A lot of people you know, will say when I, you bring up this aspect of the Buddhist teachings, like how could you be a parent and not take things personally? Or how could you be an activist? How can you be a lover, have a partner or whatever and not take things personally? Well, the appropriate response is, well, try it. Like, we just assume that we have to be attached to be an engaged, compassionate, appreciative human being. But, but the question is, do we? Do we have to be attached? Do we have to be personalizing everything in order to show up in life and contribute and to care? I think what you'll find, what I'm finding, what people find, is that actually we're freed up the more in little and little ways, the more we abandon or weaken, loosen the habit of being attached, being fixated, being identified, the more nimble and creative and intimate, undefended, the more that our response comes from being connected because it's the fixedness of our views that keep us apart, keep us not aware, not seeing clearly, not feeling deeply in both a a broad way and a breadth, but also in a depth of what's here, subtlety of what's here. It's the fixedness of my ideas about things. Like if I'm having a conversation with my spouse... Many of you know when one of the teachers here. You know, if I'm in a fixed view about who I am or who she is or who's right in this particular thing that we're talking about, how could I possibly be really there, connecting, feeling into the moment in a bre- with a breath and a depth, so that what I say or how I receive what she's saying? How could I really do that with any kind of integrity if in a neurotic way I'm desperately holding to my idea about what's right? We have to choose. We can't do both. We can't both be attached to our view of things and really showing up in a, in a way that has a lot of integrity. And this is true in every single activity of our life. And so one of the, the real skillful means to helping this, because wanting to shift the view from fixedness to being in a more open, humble, innocent, really, in a, in a sense, way with, in the moment, you can't just will ourselves to have less attachment or less identification. Right? It just ends up being more of the same. It's like uh, one of the teachers I had when I was doing a number of the three-month retreats at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, one of our great grandmother institutions here, same with Spirit Rock on the West Coast, north of San Francisco. But anyway, 
One of the regular three-month teachers at that time was somebody named Michelle McDonald. Uh, she's from Hawaii, lives in Hawaii most of the time. And uh, she had a great line near the end of one of the, those longer retreats where she said, one of the great things about being on a longer retreat is that we have an opportunity to abandon some of our false equanimity. You know, Because that's what we do when we're trying to when we do have some sense of attachment or identification being the problem, then we, just in an unconscious way and not mindful way, we pretend to not be attached. We pretend not to be identified because we think it's bad, which is an attachment, of course, right? Like, so then we're attached to the image, the idea of not being attached. So you see, it can get really stinky in that way. So part of what we're learning is that it's true, it's good to see that attachment is not the way, that any fixed view, even being fixed or attached to what many of us would agree is a, you know, seems right, some view like we should be kind, but the mind being fixed on that idea that we should be kind and dependent on it is a cause for suffering. So it may be on some level true that kindness is a better way to be than being mean-spirited or having a lot of ill will. I think most of us feel like that's right. But that doesn't mean we need to be attached or identified with that and then therefore be afraid of those moments or needing to be in denial of those moments when we have ill will because it's not what we're identified with. So we have to then, you know, have you ever caught yourself being really busy at rationalizing why you were mean? Like telling yourself, I'm not mean, or that the person needed this meanness, you know, I was just showing up, giving the person what they needed, Sure, it wasn't pleasant for them, but I'm, it will hopefully be good for them in the long run. <laughs> it was a sacrifice I was willing to make. <laughs> it is. It's sometimes we feel like we have to be, you know, it's like somehow in this post-God world that, you know, that because there's no being sort of meeting out justice, we have to take it upon ourselves to make sure people get their karmic desserts, you know, what they deserve. And because, uh, you know, that would be a bad scenario if all of a sudden karma stopped working, cause and effect stopped working because nobody is paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I often joke, just because of my critical mind, judgmental mind, you know, I often joke with my spouse about this, like this tendency I have to need to point things out. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be able to laugh at at these things, because it's not pretty. You know, when we're really honest about that tendency, you know, to feel like whenever the mind, the heart, feels justified in being tight, a little mindfulness bell should go off in our heart. Honey, honey, you have to take a look at this. Like, do you really, are you living a life where 
the way to peace, like if peace is really your aspiration, do you really think getting tight is in the direction of peace? Being mean, having ill will is in the direction of peace and release. Throwing somebody out of our heart is in the way of full, unshakable release of the heart. I don't think that's the way. You better look again if you think this is the appropriate response in this moment. I mean, it's totally understandable that our heart will be tight, that we'll fall into ill will, but it should never be because we think it's the way to peace. It should be because that habit has a lot of momentum and they're right in this moment isn't enough wisdom for me to relate in another way. But I'm not going to pretend, I'm not going to tell myself a story that this is the the way, that what I'm doing is leading me in the direction I want to go because then we have a dishonest relationship with life where we're going to hell but we're telling ourselves a story that I'm interested in going to heaven, right? going toward peace. But actually, what we're doing in terms of how we're relating in that moment is we're making the heart go crunch. We're getting tight. We're engaged one more time in a sense of, in a way of separating ourselves, fragmenting ourselves. And then we feel alienated. We feel disconnected. And it's even easier to justify ill will, being identified with ill will and with all the other related afflicted emotion, afflictive emotions that we get identified. The afflictive emotions are going to come, but the identification and building the dependency on them, that doesn't need to happen. The afflictive emotions will come because they have momentum in the personality, in the conditioned mind. So we're we're learning to come into allegiance in this way that we could call not being fixed. And the trick, you know, the easy way to do this challenging work is understanding how love, metta, loving kindness, appreciating what's beautiful and good, having equanimity, humility, these different qualities of the heart or love is a is the easy way to begin to shift our view from a view that is fixed to a view that is not fixed. Because when you look at your own experience with authentic moments of love, not special moments, generally the special moments aren't really that authentic, just natural, organic moments of your heart being open, you'll notice In those moments of simple kindness, simple moments of appreciating what's beautiful, having gratitude, moments of forgiveness, you'll notice that the mind is not doesn't have a fixed view. There's a certain humility. One of the telltale signs of those moments is one, on the one hand, the feeling of that natural, authentic moments of love or forgiveness or kindness or gratitude or appreciation. On the one hand, it's really pleasant. But on the other hand, now if you think about your experience, see if this is true for you, there's a, at least in the initial moments, a sense that you're, you're not doing it. Now, in the, a little bit later, you might tell yourself a story that 
my heart is really beautiful or I'm really forgiving. But in the initial moments before that habit reasserts itself, one of the telltale tastes of moments of simple, natural love, which makes it even more beautiful, more worthy of appreciation, is in a sense that it's unconstructed or doesn't belong to me or anybody. Like that capacity for the heart to open, to feel that natural generosity of the heart, natural sense of everything belonging or willingness to include, willingness to forgive, to understand that everyone's doing the best they can, to not sort of divide or fragment or separate ourselves out, that that way of being for, you know, and it might only last a second or two, those little natural moments, but the flavor, the taste of it is that I'm not doing that. In a way, it's precisely because I wasn't trying to do anything that the heart or mind, whatever, stumbled in, opened up to those moments. And we can appreciate it, but we can't really take control. I mean, if we could take control of it, we'd be there all the time, right? I mean, if it was something I did, we would just do that all the time. But we can make ourselves, in a sense, more accident-prone for those moments, those natural moments of the heart opening, including loving, relating with kindness and forgiveness and patience, without it being another should, not a, another self-trip. Right? And it's just a matter, it's like a lot of this work of the shift of view, right? Because that's sort of what we're talking about, this particular aspect of the Buddhist teachings, to be suspicious of fixed view and to be interested in the absence of fixed view. And this really, because it can be initially frightening, even as a thought, like not having a fixed view, that somehow I just be blown around by the forces at play, and totally taken advantage of. So as a more useful way is to sense how how functional moments of love and kindness, these qualities of the heart, how functional they are and how they have much less of that fixed quality. It's like even having to navigate a difficult, let's say it's often, you know, in our family situations and so there's let's old unfinished business and instead of like some fixed idea of how are you going to fix that family situation it'd be much more useful much more pragmatically useful to enter that family dynamic with I don't know what the heck to do but I know that I care at least I know I care about my own suffering And I realize they're probably as entangled in this as I am. And I know that I care. And I know I can't really figure out like what I should say or what I should expect or so I'm just gonna enter, you know, I'm going home for the holiday, you know, something like that. I'm just gonna enter this with only that. That's my sword (laughs) that I'm entering. I care. 
and I don't know. And I'm willing to feel what I feel. Right? Probably that would set up, support any healing that might be able to happen in that particular family dynamic. It's the humility and the willingness to feel, feel and the willingness to not be so dependent on our fixed ideas. Because it really matters what we pay attention to. And if I keep paying attention to the meaning my mind is making about the relationship, about the injustice of what that person did, then that sort of fixes things. It sort of sets something in motion one more time. But if I'm willing to not look at that fixed idea to suspend my belief, to have that don't know mind, that humility, and to be willing to feel, to connect, to feel, and to know that it isn't easy being a human being, well, then something new can happen. And it's not just in terms of like those entrenched problems in our families or in the world, things like you know racial injustice or other kinds of class systems that are deeply embedded in our culture or other ways of throwing people out of our hearts that exist. Even in the, in the really ordinary ways, how we relate to food, how we relate to our own emotions, how we relate to our body. You know, we have fixed views about these things too. And we can learn to trust this like uh, using, because we're just more fluent and familiar with the experience of love, still relatively rare, I mean real love, this unconditioned, this willingness to include, this willingness to be intimate, that's really what I mean by love. Not like I love you, but the willingness to be stripped away of fixed ideas and just to show up in that that open way, that non-exclusive, non-excluding way. We see that as a real power, like a refuge, an alternative to being dependent on fixed ideas. So I, I would encourage you, like even now as I'm, we're talking and I'm going to open it up for discussion, and by the way, I encourage everyone to stay to 8.30 just as a way of respecting the community energy, not to leave during the open discussion time, um, but to just experiment right now as we listen to each other, to stay in that open place and to notice the tug to go back to a fixed view, like, I don't think that person knows what they're talking about, or that person's so great. Those thoughts are going to come and go, and it's really natural for those thoughts to be there, but we don't need to own those thoughts as being more than what they are. They're just thoughts. And instead, we're taking refuge in that, that capacity of the mind, the heart, to be open, this sense of humility, the non-fixedness. Just feeling what we feel, thinking the thoughts that move through the mind, but not trying to use that activity of the mind and body to maintain or fix a sense of self. Instead, we're using the activity of the mind and body to transform 
right? To move in the direction of freedom. So we're, we're learning to trust, like Joseph Goldstein uses an image, a very powerful image of a free fall. You know, so that's love as a free fall. Love as a not having any ground. Because there's sort of two, just to keep it simple, two movements in the heart. One is a generosity of the heart. You know, the heart that goes out or the heart that includes, that receives. And there's a heart that is protecting, self-protecting, about self-importance, about creating ground for me, safety for me. But what happens if we give up the idea of needing safety? Right? doesn't mean that we're not vulnerable. We're still vulnerable, but we're okay with that vulnerability. Or we're realizing that having a problem with vulnerability doesn't make us less vulnerable. Or struggling to create a sense of safety with an idea about what's happening doesn't actually make us any more safe. It just creates psychological stress because we have to defend our ideas about things. So we allow it all to fall apart, which allows us to be to show up in a more authentic way, a more relaxed way, a more loving way. And then we start to feel more alive. And our response is so much more creative and useful because we just happen to be more present, more connected, feeling more, seeing more what's going on around us. So our response in the moment is just more useful. And the only thing we're sacrificing is a defense that isn't really defending anything, ground that isn't really ground. Right? We're only letting go of what's stressful. It feels like we're letting go of self or you know, the most important thing, but every time we look and see, we're not really losing anything of value. Only something, you know, it's like... A, child losing their security blanket or their teddy bear. I mean, I, maybe this isn't a good example for those of you who still... <laughs> I tend to hug my pillow at night when I'm sleeping. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I've never undergone therapy, so... <laughs> but, I mean, from a certain perspective, we see these patterns... It's easier, of course, to see it in other people than in ourselves. You know, that people clinging to rituals, the baseball players evidently, you know, who have all their little things they do so they get a hit, you know, these things that then they become, they just assume it's true, you know, we've got to do this, otherwise I'll be cursed or I'll have bad luck. Or So it's, when we take those things away, we can get huge pushback from a child. You know, but we can also be pretty assured that we're not endangering the child. So we ourselves, when we practice relying on this more unconditioned, unconditional friendliness, openness, undefendedness, when we practice, we might get some pushback from the patterns in the mind that are more like a two-year-old or three-year-old who feels quite dependent on some routine. But we don't need to be confused by the pushback, by the crying. or right. We'll just collect data to actually see if there's some value to living in this more open, loving way.
Is it dangerous to love unconditionally, as if somehow the world would take advantage of us, or somehow I'll run out of love if I give it away all day long? If I'm kind to myself and kind to others, if I forgive myself and forgive others, if I'm generous to myself and generous to others, will I end up in some kind of debtor's prison, having, you know, like, given away stuff that I was in mind to give away. I mean, that's what we think. We have this sort of idea that if we live in that loving and generous and wholehearted way, we'll get screwed in some way. And it's not that different than holding on to some, you know, whatever, thinking it's keeping us safe. Do we live life from a point of view of scarcity or do we live life from a point of view of abundance? Not abundance of wealth, not even an abundance of health, but an abundance of love, right? And, and the, the question isn't whether I'm right or not. The question is, are we interested enough to check it out? That's the only question. What is the risk of sticking our toe in? If that feels good, sticking the foot in, and then both feet, and then up to the ankles, up to the knees, until, you know, depending on your personality, maybe you take forever before you take the plunge, or maybe you just jump in. And then we'll have our own direct experience. We won't be so dependent on what the Buddha says worked for him, right? or somebody else says what worked for them. You'll know for yourself the way forward in life. So we have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice. I'm sure some of you have your own experiences with what I've been talking about or questions. Anybody want to start us off? What comes to mind from the discussion tonight? How does it relate to your own life and practice? What questions do you have? Yeah, please. You want to pass it straight back? Second row of chairs. I'm Noreen. Okay, I was walking my dog. I was out in the country. And I was with a friend, and a dog came out from the road, another dog, big dog, and started attacking my dog. And they just had this little scuffle, and then they kind of split, right? This man came out that owned the dog and started beating on him, and I mean beating on his head. And I was like watching, I mean, and, and I said something like, don't, you know, don't do that, he, he's just acting like a dog. And... Um, then he started kicking the dog in the chest. And then I kind of escalated and said some nasty things, um, which I, I was just reacting and, yeah, probably a habituated pattern. But the thing is, is we walked away. I walked away, and it was my reaction to the whole thing that happened that was, it was like um, the light went on, like I was making the situation worse with my aggression. You know, I was just giving back to him what he was putting out. And I just saw this whole thing unraveling in front of my eyes as we're walking down the road. And I mean, I'm shaking now thinking about it. And, but then I, it was just one of those moments where I was going like, oh, I think I get this now. And not trying to hang on to it, but I don't know what happened. I just know how I was reacting in this situation. And I thought about, well, maybe I should go back and apologize. I mean, it took me 50, about five minutes to calm down. But I thought, well, maybe I should go back and apologize. And I go, no, 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 don't do that. Um, but 
I really saw how what later on I started going like, poor guy, you know, what made him do that? What happened? I mean, my compassion came out basically for this guy. I mean, it's serious. It was really compassion. And it was a very good teaching moment for me or experience for me to see something like that. And I thought about it a little bit, but not too much, not hanging on to it. But I questioned it. And then the friend that I was with that night was saying, she goes, I don't want to wear this shirt down. We were at the cabin, she said, because I'm afraid that guy's going to see us and he's going to come over. I mean, and I was like, oh, okay, now she got affected by it too. You know, that. So I don't know if I'm thinking too much about it or. Yeah, but this this is a really great example you're bringing up for us. And just let's all of us imagine how challenging, what a huge step it would be to be seeing that person beating the dog, which is, for many of us, would be really traumatic, right? Because dogs represent, to some degree, things that are defenseless and deserving of our protection and care, and then seeing somebody abusing the dog. And that kind of chaos, that sort of disorderly, this is not how it's supposed to be. And for the mind to let it in and to be willing to feel what we feel without our mind constructing meaning and being dependent on the meaning, like that shouldn't happen or that man is being bad, right? whatever the view the mind constructs in a situation like that. See, so the... It's not that that idea is wrong, but the holding to the idea is the mind, our mind, our heart, attempt to not feel what we're feeling. Because there is very real suffering happening in a moment like that. And it's not easy for us to be in the immediacy of suffering without wanting, needing to separate ourselves away from it with an idea. That person's doing something wrong. And it gives us a sense of having some distance from what we find unbearable, that an innocent animal can be abused like that. But that's actually the case. An innocent animal is being abused. Can we be intimate without putting that view as a sort of protection? That's not easy to do. So we want to be really respectful for about how much we're asking, that this is a long process. And it's so good how just how you reflected on it in hindsight, where we can be a little bit more skillful when we have some distance. But some of these things that will arise from us will trigger a very powerful need to defend ourselves. And we do that by fixing on an idea as an alternative to just feeling what we feel, seeing what we see. And in the, like, it's not easy for us to ground into, open up to the world we actually inhabit, where there is so much injustice, so much betrayal and unfairness, so much powerful beauty and goodness too, right? Such as bad. And it's, we don't really, we haven't developed the trust to be right in the middle of that without fixing things and holding to thought, dependent on thought.
dependent on these ideas. But we can begin to experiment around the edges and we build the confidence, even in hindsight, right? Because that's sort of what you describe doing in hindsight is like holding the whole thing without a fixed view. Your idea that he's probably suffering and I can have compassion was your way of loosening the fixed view that he's bad, right? So that's how we do it. It's like that, just that capacity to have a more relative, fluid view of the situation, to see things from different angles, is how we loosen the screws up, right? And we start to feel more, actually, not less. We feel more. We feel, but it's like the strong feelings that move through us of beauty and terror. Maybe that's okay for those strong movements of feeling to move through us. Maybe that those strong feelings of beauty and goodness and pain and terror don't need to be resisted in any way. And that's for all of us to explore. Thanks for sharing. We have time for at least one more person. What else has come to mind? Questions or just sharings like the previous one from your own life? Yeah, please. Um, I'm Glenda. And um, I feel like there is, for me, a real serendipity with this talk tonight. Like Everything you said was what I needed to hear because right after this, I'm having a conversation with a friend that I'm in conflict with. And especially what you said about um, entering into a difficult situation with I care and I don't know. I felt like a real like, okay, I could do that. Um, But even after everything you've said, um, I still kind of wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you mentioned um, when we kind of like let everything fall away and enter into a space with more vulnerability, we can fear that we're going to be taking advantage of. And I experience this friend as being pushy, which is part of our conflict. And so I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah. But you know, ahead of time, you can be, because you probably already are, you can be interested in what is getting in the way of my own, like just on the level of personality, the personality's skill to protect itself, to be fierce when it needs to be fierce, to be strong when it needs to be strong. Because as we open, we're not putting any brakes on the personality from expressing itself. So what's in the way? Like why? Because that tender heartedness that is there with the openness, it's just as tender tender hearted about the fragility the exposure of this creature right here as it would be for the other creature over there. So what's in the way of this creature taking care of itself? What, is, what misunderstanding, what fixed ideas? Like it's not okay to be angry. Right? A lot of people, maybe more people who identify as women than men, sort of have gotten that cultural conditioning that it's not okay to express anger, or it's not okay to uh, wield power or something like that, right? So it's like, well, what's in the way of the personality, the creature, Glenda, doing what needs to be done? Why, Why isn't the mother 
fierce mother energy, grandmother energy stepping up? What's in the way of that? Because it might be just another view that's not being seen, another fixed view, identification with something. Or another way this often manifests is like, it's not okay for other people to get hurt because you standing up for yourself might really cause some pain in that other person. But you know what? We're not responsible. Like We don't really know whether that pain is good for that person or not. We have to have a lot of humility. And that's, again, that's just another common cultural conditioning that it's not okay for our interaction to leave the other person hurting. Maybe that's going to happen sometimes. Maybe it's okay that that happens, that how we are, how we take care of ourselves. But in the end, you don't have to do it. You just have to keep loosening the screws so that whatever, because the appropriate way for you to be around somebody who's pushy, you know, has that in their personality, it's like the appropriate response is already built into the system. So it's more about getting out of the way so that the appropriate response can express itself. And if it's not, then to be observing like what screws still need to be loosened because that would be a natural thing for somebody to protect themselves when somebody's being pushy. So why isn't that happening? Not how can I do that? How can I protect myself from that person's pushiness? But what's in the way of that not I mean what's in the way of that happening? And that we can do like with some distance and then we jump into the situation, collect some more data, because it's not easy to do that reflecting in the moment. Maybe if there's enough safety in the situation, or you just punctuate it, you say, I'm gonna go to the bathroom, I'll be back in a minute, you know, and you can kind of feel into what's there and what attitudes, what un What's there that's not being seen? You can even ask that question. What's here that's not being seen? You know, like unseen things in the relationship, uh, um, unacknowledged attitudes, views in the relationship. Like this person's too fragile. I have to always give in to them or something like that. Well, how do I know that? And that might be exactly what's reinforcing their weakness is me thinking that they're weak and can't take my honesty. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I'm sure a lot of us relate to that. And it's 8.30, so we need to let it all go here. It's really okay to drop the words and not to, have to, not to feel like you have to remember anything. Some of what we've talked about tonight will land and be useful. Everything else just lands on some shelf somewhere in the heart, perhaps to arise at a later date. Sensing how natural humility can be. The mind being not fixed, open, thanks for coming everyone, really good to be here together.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.